0: So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan, where his father had lived as a foreigner. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was seventeen years old, he often tended his, fa- his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his wa- father's wives, Billah and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph—a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. One night Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. His brothers responded, So you think you'll be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance— As he approached, they made plans to kill him. "'Here comes the dreamer,' they said. "'Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams.'" But when Reuben heard of their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. "'Let's not kill him,' he said. "'Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him.'" Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Then, just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for twenty pieces of silver, and the traders took him to Egypt.
1: Those of you who are new, uh, maybe uh, maybe today's even your first Sunday. We all year have been emphasizing a theme in our church called by faith. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so we all year have basically been in the Old Testament. We started in Habakkuk, and then we have been in Genesis since, I think, October, working through the book of Genesis, looking at these lives of the men and women of this great first book of the Bible who learned... What, how important it was to walk by faith. And through their stories, we see what it means to be a Christian who lives by faith. We see the challenges that, is, that it presents itself and it presents to all of us and what it looks like as God honors people who walk by faith. Now this summer, uh, we're gonna probably leave the Old Testament and we're gonna do a series all through the summer that's entitled Wonderful Words. Uh, you know, there are certain words in the Bible, just one word, And that one word is so filled with meaning and the depth of that one word has incredible implications and applications for us. These are important words, again, that we should know, understand, and appreciate if the foundation of our faith is gonna be laid and it's gonna be solid. These are words that we use. You hear them in sermons and you may wonder, what does that completely mean? Where is that in the Bible? I wanna give you the biblical basis for things like, Sovereignty and sanctification and uh, hard words like predestination and uh, repentance and even things like prayer, which we may take for granted. So that's coming in the summer, but for the remainder part, remaining part of May, we're going to finish out the book of Genesis with uh, three messages that are entitled um, "God at Work." And all of these messages involve the most written about person in the book of Genesis, the person Joseph. Does that kind of surprise you? Uh, I know it does me, Uh, you know, when I think of the book of Genesis, I think obviously Adam, Noah, um, uh, you know, uh, Abraham, uh, those types of guys, right? And you know, I'm familiar with Joseph, but it, it didn't, it really surprised me when I realized that in the book of Genesis, Abraham, 14 chapters, 14 chapters are dedicated to Abraham. 14 chapters are dedicated to Joseph, right? But the section on Joseph is 25% longer than Abraham. He's the most written about person in the book of Genesis. And yet we hardly ever talk about Joseph. I think maybe that's because for many of us, uh, unconsciously, we've been influenced by some things. You know, uh, he's, he's only mentioned four times in the entire New Testament, one of them is in the book of, of Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of fame of faith. And uh, Jesus never talks about Joseph. He talks about Moses and Elijah and, and Abraham, but he doesn't mention Joseph. And so I think for many of us, you know, Joseph is the guy with the coat of many colors, right? We learned that story when we were in Sunday school, we saw a play maybe, uh, or a, a movie about that that was entitled the same thing, but yet, And and the result of that, um, and that kind of that understanding of Joseph, is that we don't connect the dots to how important he is within redemptive history. So we're going to spend some time, uh, three messages on the life of Joseph. Chapter 37 opens up this great story, and the first thing I want us to see in these opening verses is the father of joseph jacob and his passivity the passive father so jacob settled again in the land of canaan where his father had lived as a foreigner this is the account of jacob and his family when joseph was 17 years old he often tended his father's flocks he worked for his half brothers in other words jacob sent him to apprentice with his older stepbrothers the sons of his father's wives bilhah and zilpah But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. Immediately, in these opening verses... We are given the impression that all may not be well in the household of Jacob. There's actually kind of an ominous undertone to these first few verses. There's a foreshadowing that is put into, especially into verses two and three. And to understand this tension, we need to kind of recap several chapters that we skipped since last week's message on Jacob. Right? Remember last week he was he had fled Haran. He had left after 20 years of indentured servitude uh, to his father-in-law Laban. He comes back with not the one wife that he was expecting, but four, you can think about that later, right? And uh, four women, and he's had a hard 20 years. And as he flees, he's coming back to Canaan into his homeland, and he's deathly afraid. He's expecting to meet Esau, who he's later told is coming to meet you, and he's got 400 soldiers with him. So he's right to be afraid, right? He comes to the the river near the Jordan River and he's all alone one night. He sends his family across the river for protection. And on that night, he has an incredible encounter with God. He ends up wrestling with the Lord throughout the night. And as a result of that encounter, I believe at that point, you can see that this is a conversion experience for Jacob. He begins to live differently. In fact, right after that event, Esau comes, he does an attack, they reconcile, they love one another, they go back, they go their separate ways. Jacob crosses the Jordan River into Canaan and he buys a piece of land outside of the town of Shechem. Shechem was one of those first places that Abram came to when he migrated to the promised land. And there, Abram built an altar in worship of God. And so, now Jacob does the exact same thing. And what's interesting is he names that altar, God, Jehovah, the Lord, the God of Israel. Here's his profession of faith, that he is worshiping the God now of Abraham and Isaac. His family isn't. His family has all of these idols, his wives, his sons. And later you'll see, after we talk about an event here, he, he forces them to all purge their idols and the, the paganism that they were uh, had their allegiance to. So he buys this land, he unpacks, he sets up camp, he intends to settle here. They begin to do business and live and thrive. One day, his daughter, Dinah, is walking out in the fields with some of the young women in the area who she had befriended, and as she's walking, a young man sees her. The young man, his name is Shechem. Uh, His father is an influential leader in the town, and he sees her, he's inflamed with lust for her, and he rapes Dinah. It's a tragic story of what occurs here. Shechem's father comes to Jacob with Shechem and says, We know what's happened. My son so deeply, desperately loves Dinah. He couldn't help himself. He wants to marry her. Please give me Dinah to marry my son. As that conversation occurs, um, they're talking, they're negotiating, they're bargaining the bride price. Dinah's brothers arrive, they're angry. Their their sister has been raped. They get involved in the negotiation process. Simeon and Levi in particular finally break in and they say, okay, you want our sister to marry you. You want us to marry women in your village. You want to integrate us into the region and into your town. You want to do business with us so that you can prosper, we can prosper. This is what was all being talked about. And Dinah was part of that negotiation And so Simeon and Levi, speaking on behalf of the brothers, say, we will do all of this on one condition. You can marry our sister, but you and Shechem and the men of the town must get circumcised. You must take on the sign of the Abrahamic covenant if we are going to marry into your families and we're going to do business with you. So Shechem's dad goes back to the town, he talks the other men into this procedure, which means Shechem's dad was the greatest salesman in the history of the world, (laughs) right? (laughs) And all the men get circumcised. And of course, this is a painful procedure with flint, li- flint knives and no anesthetic. And it takes several days to recover from this rather painful procedure. And while they are recovering, Simeon and Levi get their other brothers and their armed militia that's part of their clan. They attack the village. They kill all the men. They ravage the city. They take the women and children as servants and slaves. Unbelievable. Right? Jacob is like, What have you done? All the people around us are gonna see us as a threat now. They're gonna to band together, they're gonna to attack. And so he packs everybody up and they, they head south. But we need to pause here for a second and we need to ask some questions. Why didn't Jacob pursue justice for his daughter who'd been raped? Uh, You can kind of understand, I mean, granted the genocide is overkill, but you can kind of understand why these brothers were so upset and they wanted justice for their daughter and they saw it wasn't happening. What's wrong with Jacob? And, and then how, what would ever possess these sons to think that they could carry out this kind of an activity and not have their dad's counsel and input as the patriarch of the family to just completely ignore him and marginalize him and to take such drastic actions. And then as you look through the remaining verses and chapters since then, these boys, they, they suffer no discipline from Jacob because of their actions. Not a thing is said It is done. So right away, you see, after they come into Shechem, a major event that indicates Jacob is a dysfunctional, passive father. You'll see it shortly after this, when they're fleeing to Bethel, you know, the stairway to heaven, all that kind of stuff that we talked about. When they get there, on the way, his, his beloved wife, the woman he always wanted to be married, the only woman he ever wanted to be married to, Rachel, dies during childbirth. As she gives Jacob his 12th son, Benjamin. Shortly after Rachel's death, Reuben, the oldest son, enters into a sexual relationship with Bilhah. Bilhah was Rachel's handmaiden, servant girl. If you remember uh, back when we first looked at Rachel and Jacob and and Leah, this was the woman that Rachel ultimately sent to the bed of Jacob and said, uh, have a relationship with her, have children through her because Rachel was barren. And, And so Bilhah has two sons for Jacob. Reuben enters into a sexual relationship with his stepmother, the mother of two of his brothers. And Jacob doesn't do anything. There's no record of him saying anything. For 40 years not a peep until his deathbed. On his deathbed, when it's time for him to give the birthright and the blessing to the oldest son, Reuben, he refuses to give it to him. He looks him in the eye and says, you ain't getting it, buddy, because of what you did with Bilhah. Talking about passive-aggressive. Right? So And there's other things that you can see in this passage that speak to the passivity of Jacob. You know, you look at these things and he's clearly in these first few verses, he's clearly concerned about his sons and how they're living. And so essentially he sends Joseph to go and spy out and, and gather the dirt, right? And that, again, begs the question, why doesn't Jacob get up and go investigate how his sons are doing and how they're living and whether or not they're stealing from him and living immorally? Why doesn't he be the one, as the father and the patriarch, take charge of this? What father, in his right mind, sends one of the youngest children to go narc on the oldest children and think that's going to work out well for the younger child, right? That doesn't work, does it, parents? Okay? And yet, this is what he does. Hey, church, we need to pause here for a second. Uh, It's not the major application of this passage, but it is an application that we shouldn't overlook because there's some severe warnings in this passage. Parental passivity, especially on the part of fathers, can lead to lethal and tragic results. This is what happens in the life of Jacob and Joseph. It's true 4,000 years later in our own time, and our own culture, we're living it out right now. The 2020 census reveals that one-fourth of the children of our nation live without the presence of a father. In other words, they don't have a biological father in their life, they don't have a stepfather in their life, they don't even have an adopted father in their life. There's no father figures. And this is devastating our nation. It's devastating it. In 2013, the Society of Sociologists did a deep uh, study of this issue and how it's impacting our culture. Here's one of the summary statements from their study. Father absence is to blame for many of our most intractable social ills affecting children. The old adage, correlation does not imply causation, does not apply to the effects of father absence on children. In other words, they are directly related and the data that they provide in that study is overwhelming. The data cannot be argued against. Children who have an absentee father are 47% more likely to live in poverty. Uh, Boys are more likely to have behavior issues, even including severe behavior issues. Girls are more likely to have psychological issues. Children who are raised in this type of a situation are more likely than their counterparts to be abused, either physically or sexually. They are more likely to go to prison. Girls are more likely to get pregnant in their teen years. Boys are more likely to become delinquents. And when I say more likely, I'm not talking about just a slight difference. For example, one statistic, Boys that are raised without a father in the home are 279 times, 279 times more likely to carry a gun and or deal drugs. This is a serious issue, absentee fatherism. Now listen, dads, those of you who are dads or have been dads, if you're relaxing right now, thinking I'm in my home, let's understand something this morning. Jacob was in his home. Proximity does not equate to presence. Proximity doesn't mean presence. Let's don't confuse proximity with presence. Jacob is present physically near his kids, but he is not present in all of the ways that matter the most. He didn't engage with them. He's passive. And the passive father can be sleeping in the same house with his children, yet he can end up having as much or even more damage on children than the absentee father has because what happens is the passive father sits there, he sees as the children begin to do their thing and decline as they're going to do without an active father, he gets more and more and more and more frustrated and then that mild, meek, passive person snaps And then he gets involved and he abuses his children. That's a cycle that happens over and over in our nation. So men, understand our children can't have passive, disengaged, disconnected fathers. This is not our calling. God calls us to lead our homes, to to nurture and, and, and raise our children as we honor their mothers. This is throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament. A couple of passages just to look at. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction, Proverbs says. Pay attention and gain understanding. Give, uh, I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. In Ephesians, we're told fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Men, that entire definition of our role in those passages precludes passivity. We can't instruct and disciple and and give our children the gospel and the wisdom of God and be passive. Just can't do it. To be disconnected. And men, let me just say it bluntly. There will be a day when we stand before our Lord and we will give an account for our failure of leadership in the homes. Women, say amen. 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 Okay? I'm giving you permission. If you want to, you can even elbow them, right? Now, listen, I know we have a lot of great dads in here, but we need this reminder. We need this reminder. And, and those of you who are younger dads, let me just park on this again. I'm sorry, this is enough. Those of you who are younger dads, seek out men who have already raised their children. And, and get in a relationship with us. You know, if for, if for no other reason than this, hear how we screwed it up. You know, my children are grown. I wish I could turn the clock back. There are things that I'm glad that I did, but there are things that I wish that I had done. Proactively in the life of my kids to help in their discipleship. So, learn from the failures of your brothers in Christ who are happy to help and share. Because I guarantee you, there's not a one of us who doesn't wish that we could dial the clock back about something, right, guys? So, take advantage of that. So, a passive father leads to what? Jealous brothers. This is what you see in the, in the rest, really, the rest of this passage. His brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. One night, Joseph had a dream and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him even more. Listen to this dream, he said. And he tells them about the bundles bowing before them. And of course, their response is this. So you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you'll reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. In this story, compounding Jacob's passivity as a father was his partiality as a father. He greatly loved Joseph, no doubt about it. Showers him with love and special attention and favors that the other brothers don't get. I think this is because he's the firstborn of Rachel, that woman who he so deeply loved, the woman who he always saw as the wife that he was supposed to, and maybe the one and only wife that he wanted, right? And this was her firstborn son. This is the son he loves. And so he favors him. Don't, don't miss the significance of the, the coat of many colors or the ornamental robe. Uh, This clothing was significant. It was the clothing that a person wore who was in charge of everyone else. (laughs) This is the robe of the rich landlord. This is the robe of the boss, the chief, who tells everyone else what to do. This is not the kind of clothing that a man would wear who's going out into the fields to take care of the sheep. So he had Joseph do a, an apprenticeship. And then when he is 17, he honors him and elevates him with this robe. And so later, when he sends him out to find out where his brothers are, who, by the way, are now 60 miles away back in the area of Shechem. So there's, these, brought, these guys are up to no good, right? So Jacob knows this, and he sends Joseph to find out. And when they see Joseph, there's absolutely no doubt in their mind about what's going on. Jacob loves him more than he loves us. He loves Joseph's mom more than he loves our mom. Otherwise, he would never give such a thing to a 17-year-old kid and they're jealous of him. And then that jealousy is exacerbated when he shares the dreams. Clearly, the dreams are indicating that one day he's gonna be a ruler over them. He shares these dreams with Jacob. Even Jacob gets upset and says, you mean you're gonna be my ruler? Right? And then he thinks about it later, and he wonders, what is God up to? And so what you see as a result of this partiality to this child is that their attitude towards Jacob begins to change. It turns from jealousy to hatred, and hatred morphed into a desire to murder Joseph. And in all of this, we now see the spiritual state of these brothers, right? And they do the most horrendous thing. They decide, let's murder him. They see him come, let's kill that guy. I mean, there's no compunction. There's no debate. I make a motion, we kill him. Second, all in favor, I. You're, you're done with this guy, right? If it wasn't for Reuben, the oldest brother, he would have been murdered right then and there. Reuben intervenes and says, no, we, we shouldn't do this. Let's put him in the cistern. And the Bible tells us that Reuben had intended to come back later and deliver him out of the cistern and take him back to Jacob. You said, wow, that's pretty good of Reuben. I'm sorry, I think he's trying to make up for what he did to Bilhah personally, get back in good favor with his dad. But it doesn't work out that way. Reuben leaves for a while and while he's gone, the guys throw him in the cistern, they sit down and they just start eating, right? And if you wanna get an idea of how, callous they are and how hardened their hearts have become because of their resentment and their bitterness and jealousy of of joseph 20 years later they are they are going through some difficult times and they believe god is punishing them and here's the reason that they give for what they're going through he said this is happening for us in truth we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. you get what he's saying? they're saying there? In other words, while they sit down to have a meal, Joseph in his sister is begging and pleading with his brothers, please let me out. And then as they take him out and they hand him over to the slavers, right? He's crying and pleading for his life. I mean, think about what these guys do. Instead of it would have been more merciful to Joseph to just kill him outright. At least it would have been quick and over with. Instead, they send send sell him into slavery to Egypt, which means he's going to have this long, drawn out, torturous life where he will die after great suffering. That was what he was looking at, and he's begging them not to do this. You know, church, when we look at this and we see these men, it it, it just boggles your mind how jealousy and resentment just hardens our hearts. And then, I mean, to compound it, look at what they do to Jacob, right? If you need no other example of what jealousy and envy and these resentments and bitternesses that we harbor in our hearts, what it will do to you on the inside of your life when it comes to the after they get rid of him, they, they take the robe. They pull a page out of Jacob's playbook. You know, Jacob deceived Isaac with a goat, right? And uh, got the birthright and the blessing. And now they take a goat and they deceive Jacob. And they slaughter it. They put blood all over it. They tear up the robe some and they send it back with a messenger. And, and what their message alone tells you everything you need to know of uh, how, how jealousy and envy and malice and resentment and bitterness that we harbor in our hearts, how it poisons the soul. Look at the wording here. Look at what we found. So they send the robe, bloody robe, back to their dad. They're covering up their crime. Look at what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to what? Your son? I mean, they can't even be good enough liars and deceivers to say, doesn't this robe belong to our poor brother, Joseph? doesn't this robe belong to your son? And for the next 20 years, they sit there and they watch their dad grieve in sackcloth and ashes. He cannot get over the death of his son, Joseph. Church, there's a reason why, when we take the Lord's Supper together, that we encourage everyone to refrain from taking the Lord's Supper, who is a Christian, if they are harboring in their heart bitterness and resentment towards another brother or sister. If our hearts are filled with jealousy or envy, malice and bitterness and resentment, this is poisoning our souls. And it's so serious that Jesus says, do not take my body and blood because you profane me when you do so. Why? Because that Jealousy and resentment and bitterness will grow and morph into hatred. And hatred, Jesus says, is functionally nothing more than what? Murder. And that's not a person who should be taking the Lord's Supper. It's easy for Christians to get there. We will pretend it doesn't exist. We'll ignore it. Um, we'll stuff down our resentments It will manifest itself in different ways. One primary way is addictions. And we'll pretend that we're really not struggling with what we actually are struggling with. So let me just bluntly ask you a question this morning, Christians. Do you have bitterness and resentment in your heart towards someone else? Are you maybe jealous of them or envious of them? Is there an attitude that is deep down there that you know, you're just kind of pretending isn't there or you're stuffing it down or you're downplaying its importance? Understand that it will rob you of the joy of your salvation and it will take you down a rabbit hole that will, can, can ultimately destroy your life. How much better is it the way of the gospel? What do we see in Ephesians? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus forgave us. The antidote to these kinds of feelings in our hearts is not to pretend that they exist or to stuff them or to ignore them or to indulge them and let them grow. The antidote is to meditate on how God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. Because the more we see our own sinfulness and the grace of God towards us and our sin because of what Jesus has done in our place, the less we are capable of holding on to resentments and bitterness and the petty jealousies that we may have towards other people. In other words, God's mercy will push out malice. Malice cannot cohabitate with mercy and grace when we meditate upon that. So we have the passive brothers. We have, excuse me, the passive father. We have these jealous brothers. And all of this results in a son who suffers deeply. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. We've already talked about what they ended up doing. And then the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, come by. Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver and the traders took him to Egypt. They were gonna leave him in the cistern. But the fourth brother, Judah, was never a guy to pass up a buck. And he sees these guys coming down the, the trail and he goes, hey, let's sell him. We can make some money off of him and put him in slavery that takes him to Egypt. And now out of sight, out of mind, and we're all got some silver in our pockets. And that's what they do here with these boys. Now, what's kind of interesting about this entire story, if you haven't noticed it yet, if you read the whole chapter and you look carefully, you know what you don't see anywhere in this chapter? You don't see God mentioned anywhere. He's nowhere mentioned in this chapter, but I'm here to tell you, he is there. He is here. And the gospel is here, and it's in the shadows of this story, pointing us to something and someone much greater than even Joseph, right? There's a couple of gospel applications from this passage here that this story is reminding us of, putting before us. The first one is something that I brought to you a couple of weeks ago with Laban and Jacob, and I just want to remind you of it again, that God's plans and promises are not stymied by humanity's sin and the evil that men and women and governments may do to humanity. Joseph experiences many, many years of hardship, loneliness and pain due to the sin of his brothers. These brothers for years think they have gotten away with it, that they got rid of their problem and all as well. Little do they know that God was working in and through their sin against Joseph to ultimately save their lives. And the life of their father and their extended clan. And he was working through all of that sin to fulfill his promises and the prophecies that he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And we get a glimpse of this, right? We get a glimpse of how God is actually present here. He is working, but he's working in the shadows behind the scene. The very last verse says, meanwhile, The Midianite traders arrived in Egypt where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was captain of the guard. Huh, we're supposed to notice that. See, God is at work and yes, something is happening here to Jacob or to Joseph that's horrible, but he's positioning Joseph, putting him in a place where ultimately he's going to be the one who brings salvation to his brothers and sisters, God working through the sins of other people, ultimately even for our benefit. Though that sin and evil may bring great suffering and hardship into our lives is meant to encourage us. It encouraged the children of Israel. Many, many centuries later, when they are undergoing extreme suffering because of the invasions of other nations, the evil that was foisted upon them by wicked men. And as they stand there in their suffering, they look back to this story of Joseph and they create a song, a song of worship and praise. And they begin to sing it to encourage their hearts. In Psalm 105, you see parts of this. God called for a famine on the land of Canaan, cutting off its food supply. Then he sent someone to Egypt ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with fetters and placed his neck in an iron collar. Until the time came to fulfill his dreams, the Lord tested Joseph's character. God's plans. And his promises towards us, they're not stymied by the worst that humanity can ever throw at us. We need to remember that this morning. But most importantly, I want you to get this. Salvation for God's people requires the suffering of God's servant. If we don't get anything else from this story this morning, I want you to get this. What happens in this episode As God is working through these men's sin and he's working in the life of Jacob, or excuse me, Joseph, to save his father Jacob, the very men who sell him into slavery, right? Yet that path that Joseph has to walk, a path that ultimately leads to his vindication, It leads to his exaltation. It leads to him being ascending to one of the thrones of governmental power, the right-hand man, the second most powerful man in the Egyptian empire is where it will ultimately lead him. But before he could get to that place of enthronement and power, first he had to walk a path of suffering and certitude and personal sacrifice. And this path that Joseph walks is the path that points us to the greater suffering servant, Jesus. There are parallels in this story between Joseph and Jesus are astounding. There are authors, uh, some men from past generations, who've come to these stories and come up with 110 parallels between Joseph and Jesus. I didn't see 110, and you can all say thank you, okay? (laughs) All right, but I do want to close out with a statement that I wrote around these parallels to compare so that we can see it together. Consider this. Both are hated by those who should love them. Both have their cloaks stripped from them. Both are betrayed for a handful of silver. Both live as humble servants. Both bear the indignity of unjust accusations. Both are wrongfully imprisoned. Both are loved by their father and obedient to his will, regardless of the personal cost. Both suffer at the hands of evil men. Both are ultimately vindicated by God and they ascend to their respective thrones, bringing salvation to God's covenant people. And both assure us that we will suffer certainly for the sake of our Lord at some point and they both assure us that in due time he will exalt and glorify each and every one of us who are faithful to our Lord. The parallels are uncanny but there is one major difference between them. The only way Jesus could save his covenant brothers and sisters, you and me, his suffering had to end in death. He had to die so that we could have deliverance from our sins, so that we could be put on this path that is ultimately going to lead to our own exaltation and glorification when he returns again and at that future date. So it is true, right? God is not explicitly mentioned anywhere in Genesis chapter 37, but I'm gonna tell you, church, you would have to be blind to not see his presence and the beauty of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ throughout this wonderful story of a young man who knows what it means to walk by faith. It's everywhere. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this great story that for many of us has been nothing maybe more than a coat of many colors or being placed in a situation of great temptation and how to respond. There's so much more here than that. You bring us Joseph so that we can see Jesus. And so Lord, I I pray first for the person who doesn't know Jesus. Would you help them to see their own need to, to rid themselves of the pagan idols, the things that they worship, that they hold on to, and instead turn to you, Lord Jesus. Would you give them a heart that loves you and is grateful towards you so that they too can join the family of God. And Father, for those of us who follow you, we are still fallen, we sin, we can can get obsessed and we can get possessed, it seems, by spirits of bitterness and anger and resentment and jealousy towards others. Would you bring to our minds' eyes and to our hearts this sin, Would your Holy Spirit convict us? May we live in harmony and unity and peace towards our fellow man. May we experience that joy that only you alone can bring. In your name I ask these things, Jesus. Amen.